0: Hello and welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. This is Anna kafano the Final Girls and Your Podcast host. For the next few months, we'll be tracing the lineage of female monsters in horror cinema. In each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a monster movie or two. In today's episode, we're officially entering the horror of the new millennium. First, we'll be chatting about the director video Japanese horror from the year 2000 that kickstarted a whole franchise and created a sound, maybe even several sounds, that still haunt my dreams to the day. I'm talking, of course, about Juon the Curse. In a house in Nerima, Tokyo, a man in a jealous rage kills his wife Kayako and their son Toshio in their home. And from that moment on, everyone who visits the place falls prey to a terrible curse. Following from that, we'll go deep into analyzing Gore Verbinski's The Ring, the English language remake of Ringo from the year 2002 that started a new wave of US remakes of J-horror films. In this one, a videotape filled with nightmarish images leads to a phone call foretelling the viewer's death in exactly seven days. Reporter Rachel Keller tracks down the video and watches it. And now she's got seven days to unravel the mystery behind the tape. I'm joined in this episode by writer and host of The Kilt podcast, Louise Blaine, to go into exactly what makes both Ju-On and The Ring so terrifying, even to this day. As always, our conversation will be entirely spoilerific, so if you're not familiar with the stories behind Ju-On or The Ring, I suggest you seek them out first. welcome back to the podcast. Hi Anna, how are you? I'm very good. I'm really I'm really excited we're making this happen. Me
1: too. It feels like a long time since we spoke even though it probably wasn't that long, but lockdown has lockdown has simultaneously lengthened and shortened time like some kind of
0: strange time loop. Exactly. I've just completely you know, understood it within myself that I don't know what time is anymore. So that means that I'm either a time lord or I am stuck in a time loop. But I don't know what day it is. I barely know what month it is. So I could just see you. And I know we're going to talk about you yep, on. It's okay. And bl- we can
1: just have our blinders on. We just need to look at each other. We've got our ha- both got our hands like little blinders. All we need to do is look at each other and talk about movies. We're
0: fine. <laughs> I just got my little <laughs> podcast blinders on. Nothing yep. exists outside of this microphone and the Zoom conversation.
1: No existential dread here. Well, only the best kind.
0: The kind exactly. we like. Only the cursed yeah. kind.
1: The cursed kind. Yeah.
0: So we're going to be talking about... Uh, Japanese horror movie *Juon: The Curse*, and one of the original, if not the first American remake of a seminal J horror film, *The Ring*, that kind of kickstarted the trend of of U.S. remakes of Japanese horror films. And actually, I yeah. should emphasize that it's of a lot of Asian horror films, not just J horror. Yeah. So let's start our chat with *Juon: The Curse* from the year two thousand. <laughs> My What is your relationship with The uh, with the Curse and with this particular version of it? Because this is a strange franchise with a lot of prequels, sequels, sidequels. Yeah,
1: so I think I'm like a lot of people in that the first time I actually encountered the Duon series was The Grudge. And it was the original Grudge. It wasn't even the, the SMG version of The Grudge. It was the original Grudge. It got a, I think I got a cinema release here because I remember going to see it... Um, and genuinely being petrified in a a new way that I hadn't really been scared before you know that noise the the, the sort of iconic look of that house so actually the direct to video drew on the curse Mm -hmm. and drew on the curse too I hadn't seen before so I'd read a lot about them I knew they were present I knew they were they came after two previous short films Mm -hmm. um, but it was just I'd never really experienced them I've watched a lot of grudges but not the curses so actually watching this for our discussion was actually my first time watching Jew on the curse and it was it was genuinely sitting down to watch it as that i think that thing is when you sit down to watch a film specifically to talk potentially critically about it or talk critically in any way about it you have a set of expectations and suddenly you're like i need to write my notes i need to be very up on this i need to know what i'm talking about but i found it oddly comforting In the way that it is very, very... It's not similar to The Grudge. It's kind Mm -hmm. of the origins, really, story for that house and for that nastiness. Mm -hmm. So I was genuinely... I think I was more like I was... Rather than sort of experiencing it for the first time where you would then have sort of dread and horror and things, I really felt like it was filling out like John lore for me. I felt like i was I was getting a backstory. It was like a, it was like a superhero origin story almost for me because it was it was like doing horror homework, really
0: interesting. I love the concept of that horror homework, but did it work for you as a horror film? It's difficult almost to take yourself away from all the the baggage of what the franchise has become since but watching this for the first time for the purposes of this did you rate it as a horror film
1: I think I think honestly like I did find a lot of the imagery horrific you know the 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 girl walking up the stairs I found particularly effective mm. um the idea of the, the mother kind of wandering around just doing her normal things downstairs and then this very you know it wasn't even a suggestion it was like this is your daughter in her school uniform mm-hmm dead who has come back and is staggering up the stairs like i found that genuinely quite disturbing and i think that's probably one of the only moments in it that i found sort of genuine fear in that i wasn't automatically thinking about every other grudge film i'd Mm -hmm. seen because i think by the time you see her crawling down the stairs Mm -hmm. twisted and broken that imagery is inherently nasty it's inherently horrible but you have seen an awful lot of those white faces and those eyes and you know globules of blood pouring from mouths to mm-hmm. the point where it's not its fault; it's mine. But I have seen an awful lot of that. But to under, I think there was a lot of stuff in it that I actually I didn't know about or had forgotten about, which was the horrible murder of the the baby. Mm-hmm. That was the even the suggestion of that was truly horrific, and I think watching all of that and going no wonder there's a grudge <laughs> you know no wonder there's a horrible curse on this house that is full of hatred and nastiness and and genuine fear and i think so it was almost like a sort of fairy tale of horror for me mm-hmm. um that had very sort of terrifying points but i think because of its disjointed nature as well was it six parts yeah I think of something super modern. I think of something like Host, which I obviously saw you talking, Watch watched your BFI uh, stuff about. That has a very specific structure. It's mm-hmm. only 56 minutes long. You have 15 minutes of exposition, so to speak. And then you have 40 minutes of relentlessness. Mm-hmm. And it's very much, it can build you up. It can get you excited. Mm-hmm. So suddenly when you split a story up into six it feels like you'll go up and then you'll drop again and you'll be back to somewhere else. And you actually spend a lot of time going, oh, so when does this set and when does this happen? And it doesn't have quite the same, even as uh, there's a lot of anthology short films that, that still manage to maintain a sense of dread. So I actually found that doing it in that specific order instead of a flow, mm. I actually felt quite disconnected from it. So I'm sounding like I'm being really mean to it. I think my approach to it repeatedly disconnected me from it in a really quite challenging way.
0: Yeah, I find it interesting. And I was going to bring up the structure because it's one of those things that I'd forgotten about the film. Yeah. I think I saw it ages ago and I hadn't—I haven't revisited it since. So the structure is definitely something that takes you out of it because it sort of forces you to try to piece together how the film is presenting itself Whilst yeah. the images are incredibly familiar, the story, the backstory, the filling in of the the story behind the curse, is is there. Like that's I think at the heart of the story. But it takes it takes you some conscious effort to piece it together. Uh, maybe because we're just not accustomed to this sort of that keeps going back and forth and telling different stories, but then also having a very simple central narrative at the heart of it, which is a vent a jealous husband murders his wife his kid their kid their cat he murders the cat, their cat yes and their then
1: cats, their sacred cat
0: and then they murder. Yeah. he murders the, the unborn child and the wife of the guy who his wife has a years long crush on you know it's a very it's yeah. a very kind of simple vengeance and jealousy narrative at the heart of it but it's all disjointed totally so I find it really interesting that you bring up kind of fairy tales so What do you out of the the tales that were told of of the curse, which one worked the best for you, and did you think the connection between them was strong enough?
1: Mm, Which one did? You know, I think the idea of the girls running to school, I loved that, and I think I love that because. And it's something that happens in the ring as well. And it's this idea of the idea of female relationships and young teenage relationships. And even though that was, I think that was her t- tutor or mm. someone that she, you know, I think there's something there where uh, there was definitely a a connection in the relatability. I think, you know, the idea of being, of y- being young and that relate. I think it is that relatability, you know, it is going to school, getting strange calls mm. from strange numbers. I think anywhere where I really especially liked was anywhere where technology was involved because I think then, and, and I, I look, looked at it through today's lens of the fact that you would never feel safe. You know, right now we understand that if we check in on Facebook, someone knows where we are. But someone calling your phone or some something not making your CD Walkman work Mm -hmm. i think those technological creeping things the fact that you you, i mean what's the idea of a ghost story Mm -hmm. a haunted house Mm -hmm. a haunted house has an old-fashioned idea to it that you go into a haunted house and things go boo but actually the idea that if you go to the haunted house and things go boo but even when you leave it can call you and it can find ways to find you Mm -hmm. and it will use any means to do it and i think that entire idea of using technology especially through young women where your your phone is your lifeline, it's your social work, it's your everything, and the fact that this number four 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 four, which I think was the name of the short film before, mm-hmm. drew on the curse. I think that I really love, and I th- I don't think I've ever really lost that love of tech being used against us, because it's a perfect. It's not quite sci fi, but it's a quite perfect melding mm-hmm. of supernatural. And what we take for granted to keep us safe. So I think that particular section I found the creepiest, you know, Mm -hmm. sitting in that, especially in a, she was in a dark classroom, wasn't she? And she couldn't keep the light on. And I think the simplicity of not being able to keep that light on or not being able to, or getting these calls and seeing things in the dark Mm -hmm. in a school especially. So all of that worked really well for me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, I guess if I'd seen it through... I guess it's just a kind of thing of, oh, and that person's dead now, and we're going to see their body, and we're going to see their bottom jaw, or not. (laughs) It's just the top jaw. I I almost feel sad that I would have spent a lot longer in their company being
0: haunted Mm -hmm. by things. This was a direct-to-video horror, and it didn't ever get a theatrical release, but it spawned the franchise that became Ju-on. It does still have that very grainy direct-to-video style to it. Yeah, it does. And it, it kind of elevates the nastiness for me. So what did you think of that approach? Because it's something that quite easily might not age that well. It's very digital video in the year, in the early '90s. Did it work for you? Do you know,
1: I think it, I think it did. And, and I think the problem for me was there's actually only two years of a difference between when that was released and when the remake of The Ring, which we'll talk about next, came mm-hmm. out. And I watched The Ring first. So I went from Ring to Curse and it was in four by, was it four by three? It certainly was, it felt small. It felt really scuzzy, but it also felt very intimate for that. And Mm. you're quite right in the fact that it really, it does get quite invasive because it does look like something that you've maybe stumbled upon watching TV in the middle of the night. It feels very heuristic. Yeah, it does. It has that kind of, yeah, you're right. And I think there's actually very, very little there's more conversations in it further on Mm. lots of it's just reactions and it's silence and going into the attic and hearing that awful noise which i didn't know was the director making that that horrible noise which i'm not going to do i'm not going to do that to anyone's ears (laughs) but like i think at its very heart when it's at its simplest and people are lighting a lighter and going Mm. into the dark and seeing horrible things the style of it almost makes it so much worse you're absolutely right it does seem like grainy and uncomfortable and when there are those kind of there's sort of extreme Mm close-ups on faces that almost feel slightly too close they Mm -hmm. almost feel quite invasive you're just like please just give me a two shot let me see two people but no you're up and close and you're reacting to horrible or even the length of time that it lingers on a screaming face when it's the mother who has just seen the daughter standing on the stairs and she screams and reacts for probably three seconds longer. And you're like, let me see what she sees. Let me see what she sees. And when it eventually does, obviously it doesn't disappoint, but Mm -hmm. it actually those kind of bits are quite masterfully. No, you're going to wait. You're going to wait until we want you to see the horrific thing.
0: I love that you're so right and the other thing that I think is quite emblematic of this film and I'm not sure I'm I wouldn't be confident enough to say it's a it started the trend. I think it's something quite specific to Japanese horror perhaps and it's the way that the film uses sound to create terror almost more than images sometimes. So what did you think of the of the way the curse uses sound as the as the source of horror?
1: I think there's a reason that we talk about those iconic, that iconic noise, isn't there? Because it's actually, it's a noise that, that specifically, is something that I think feels alien in that universe. And it was funny because I was watching, and this is really nerdy, I spent a lot of, we've we've talked about this before, (laughs) I, I spent a lot of lockdown playing Animal Crossing. And there was a scene in a house and the girl has the window open Mm -hmm. and there are cicadas making a noise outside. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I could have told you before I played Animal Crossing that that noise was specifically a cicada. (laughs) I think I would have just said a bug or a cricket. And instead, I know fine well that it is the squeaking and squawking of cicadas outside the window because of Animal Crossing amazing and because of that it was like she was in the house and i think she either closes the window or opens it so it is very much about that house it is about the claustrophobia Mm. of that house and the shutting out of the environment and obviously actually this one goes to much many more places it goes to a school it goes to different places a mortuary whereas other grudges largely stay in that house and are completely fixated by it um so I really like the use of sound there to go, no, no, you're here mm. now. You're here now and mm. it will be these noises. You will hear what we want you to hear. And again, it's that kind of the playing with the CD Walkman that mm. she can't get it to work properly. You will listen. And then she's in silence. And Suddenly we're in silence too, because it's this, she finds the silence uncomfortable at that point. So she puts on her music. So we hear that and we're like, oh, it's everything's okay. Mm-hmm. So it really cleverly positions us with the characters when it's uncomfortably quiet, It is uncomfortably quiet Mm. and we don't like it. You know, you'd do anything to turn that music back on because there is a stillness and silence in that house which it masterfully steers you through really because you you just wish there'd be another noise that wasn't. Especially, it shouldn't... I think a lot of horror and I think a lot of sometimes people say that horror doesn't scare them is because a lot of horror does ridiculous things right so it walks that uncanny valley Mm -hmm. doesn't it so a little boy making a cat meowing noise could err into the completely absurd it could err into the complete ridiculousness and someone somewhere would laugh Mm -hmm. but if you've bought into that universe and you've bought into that house when Toshio meows it's horrific it's genuine and it's just a small moment but it's
0: really horrible it's horrific i was actually gonna bring that moment up because that's one of the ones that freaked me out the most Rewatching it yeah and it's the uncanniness of seeing an image and a sound that does not correspond to it the image of toshu is already i mean you know Little kids are creepy. Let's just put that out there. They are creepy. They're creepy. Yeah. A little kid staring at you intensely and not saying anything. Extra creepy. And also, when she picks up the phone call and there's the cat meow, and it's sort of a screechy meow, like it's a cat in pain, which is a very unsettling noise in itself. The, you know, the iconic sound that we referenced that I 100% will put in the edit, but I'm not going to try to do it now. You're not doing it? (laughs) I'm not going to do it now. I might do it later. Let me finish my gin first. (laughs) but it's this it's sounds that sort of are familiar enough that we can sort of kind of recognize them but they are imbued with a creepiness that makes them unsettling and the fact that they don't match with the images that we're seeing like if we see someone you mentioned something before that completely taps into it we see say someone with their mouth open with a grimace on their face but they're not screaming that becomes terrifying even though we don't hear the sound because it's yeah. dis- the disjointed yeah, it's image discordant. yeah, yeah, and the same when we see an image or a figure, and the sound that's emanating from them just does not fit our understanding of that reality. It completely upsets you, and I found the the fact that the graininess and the kind of intense realism almost of the way that it was shot contrasting with these discordant images and sound made it creepier for me.
1: I think that's something that, you know, I especially I think when I started experiencing Japanese horror, I think that was the big thing for us. I think, I think we were all very, no matter when we saw it, we were used to a, a, sty- a certain style of horror mm-hmm. film. And especially in the early noughties, what had we had? At the, at the late 90s, we'd had Scream, we'd had Final Destination, we'd had loads of slashers, we'd had all of those things. And we thought we knew what it meant to be scared. And we'd had, what else did we had? We had those Dark Castle movies, House on Haunted Hill. Mm. We'd had a lot of really slick, really glossy movies. Mm-hmm. And then when the Japanese horror audience, when, the, when it arrived in cinemas here and when it we were finally uncovering, you know, what what was there, it felt so different mm-hmm. because it had different rules and it was these rules of you are going to be scared of noises. You are going to go into a haunted house and you're not going to like it when the things creak. But previously we'd have thought, oh, ghost stories like that. and They'll never scare me. But now I think that style of confident horror Mm -hmm. making in a very definitive, it has a very definitive language. You know what I was saying about the the, the white faces and the movement. That doesn't, those things are terrifying. (laughs) but they were they were more so because we'd never seen anything like that before yeah. and it can still su- surprise now
0: yeah and they're also you know very culturally specific and there's definitely totally. nuances to japanese culture that we're not able to pick up for sure um Absolutely. and you know we go into this knowing that as well but you're yeah. right it's the it's the fact that it's new imagery and it's a new a new approach to horror. At least it was then. I think, you know, this spark. Yeah, it a, was to us. Yeah. Now it's, yeah. But I think it's still, it still stands up now. Now we're just able to see the influence that it's had over the years and the decades since it yeah. sort of first kind oh, of totally. coming out. And I wanted to move on a little bit to the key monster of the film so you know in this series we're just looking at the monstrous feminine and female monsters and the many ways that they've presented themselves basically any female character that's presented as a supernatural villain Uh, so what do you make of Kayako
1: I have always found Kayako absolutely terrifying Kayako is truly I think um I think the interesting thing about Kayako, and I think it's something that I think about now because I, I think about things with a little bit more analysis. I think of this the fact that she is the saddest character. Really, she's uh, so she's a product of rage mm. and toxic masculinity and jealousy and everything horrific from the fact that she was in, she had a family and a cat and a nice house, and was murdered you know and i think the idea of this enduring anger and it's it's just a sadness as well like i feel really i feel really sad for her Mm -hmm. i am afraid of her and i feel sad for her and i feel like the desperation of just being literally cursed Mm. to just do this forever because of the nature of the death is just the saddest most horrific thing and it and is objectively scary she is a scary presence you know she is and it's that obsession with with hair and the twitchy movement and just seeing an eye gosh horror is obsessed with eyes Mm -hmm. it's just obsessed with just having eyes and i in terms of imagery she's the most fascinatingly terrifying soul existence and it's something that we'll talk about a little bit later on with ring Mm -hmm. you know that particular presence doesn't get any less terrifying with age shall we say she is sad and scary all at once do you get enough of her in the film no not in that one no she's almost but but you know that scene with her Mm -hmm. is awful yep and i especially love the angle Mm -hmm. so when she's come down the stairs and i actually every shot on those stairs i love who knew that a 90 degree angle on some stairs would be so thrilling and terrifying (laughs) but i love those (laughs) stairs i genuinely love those stairs um but once she's done that, I love the shot, the top down shot, because it just over accentuates the absolute unnatural positioning of her body mm-hmm. and movement. Mm-hmm. And I suppose while I could feel like, oh, she's not used enough by the fact that she is used in sort of a very potent way mm-hmm. in one particular scene or, or, you know, the scene with the, the bag is quite oh, strange. She's in that bag. Yes. That's horrible. I
0: love, that's my favourite scene. where the bag is just moving and you just see her hand rip through the bag and reach out to her husband who she kills
1: well i'm glad she got him yeah
0: good for her i was
1: really glad she got him that was quite that was very satisfying but obviously not what he's holding but like i do she does enough and it's a very short film it was what an hour and 10 minutes yes it's really short i love that in comparison to our next film, which is very long.
0: <laughs> Before we move on to The Ring, do the curse, the one that we're discussing, which you know I've mentioned several times, is the director video one? So sometimes it's a little yeah. bit forgotten because it's not as glossy, didn't get a theatrical release, and all the the legacy and the life uh, the life cycle of a film that gets a theatrical release and then a home entertainment release. So and it was the source of many sequels and a whole franchise and a world and many rip-offs as well but would you yep. recommend the contemporary horror fans seek this particular one out yes yeah because it's doing your horror homework <laughs> it's it's
1: it's um crossing your t's and dotting your i's with regards to this particular franchise i don't i, I genuinely i'm really sad that i hadn't seen it already but i was so happy that i did it just feels like that little extra jigsaw piece mm-hmm. fastening in um, which I didn't really knew, know I needed, but I really did, it turns out. So yes, absolutely. Watch it. It's what, £2.49? In fact, I think I found out after I rented it from Amazon that it's available on Shudder. Yeah, so watch it on Shudder because you've probably already got it for Host <laughs> and Pool and, and Petygore and all of those things. Watch it on Shudder. There's nothing to lose except an hour and you've got, it turns out, plenty of time right now.
0: Yes, time is but a concept and a concept that must yes. be filled with horror films. Correct. That is. That is my understanding of time now but you know let's move on to our conversation about the ring have you heard about this videotape that kills you when you watch it you start to play it and it's like somebody's nightmare. and as soon as it's over your phone rings and what they say is you will die in seven days Katie told you she was going to die. She told me. She said she didn't have enough time. Would you say that I'm gullible?
1: No. Easily rattled? A little highly strung, maybe.
0: I watched the. I'm not going to get all worked up over some rumor. You show it to me.
1: Miss Keller, I'm bothered by these drawings. Why did you draw that house? She told me to. Who? Who told you to? She told me to.
0: Before you die, you see the rain. The images on the table are leading somewhere. Show you the horses, put you on your throne, Rachel. So but What is it you think you know? Hello. Before you die, you see the oh, ring. You see the ring. <laughs> I really wanted to talk about this one because it was the first of its kind in many ways. And it set a whole trend. And I think it really blew up J-horror and Asian horror in a wider sense. Uh, It brought it to the attention of English language audiences. You know, it's a big, glossy American remake. So, but I want to talk a little bit about the film In Isolation, just about what it is without kind of, you know, being trapped by its legacy and the history of it. But what's your relationship with the 2002 The Ring?
1: So I have a really fun relationship with this movie and the fact that I used to listen to a lot of XFM when I was however old I was, how old was I? I was 17, there we go, I was fresh-faced and 17. And um, I won a competition to have cinema tickets to see the and I didn't know what it was. I I didn't know anything about it. I was young and naive and lived on the west coast of Scotland and I had never even heard of Ringu and all of these things. You know, I was I was young, and I won tickets and I went through to Edinburgh and I watched it, and I can honestly say that when she came through the television. <laughs> I brought my knees up to protect my face and I've only ever done that in one other movie and that was in Paranormal Activity which I did in the cinema I brought my knees up to protect my face and almost broke my nose and that happened to me when I saw that movie so I have a naive, sweet, lovely horror, baby horror fan reaction to that movie that I'm really, I, I still love it I still love the feeling of how how I felt like the minute she pushed through that screen She'd pushed into she'd pushed a button in my head that broke me. You know, <laughs> something happens. I was this this isn't allowed. This isn't the rule. The next step for her would have been to crawl out of the cinema screen, which at that point felt very possible. Anna. Like it felt like every rule, there was no rules. What was the rule book? The rule book had been thrown in the well. Like, what was this? And I think watching it now. Where it doesn't obviously have the same visceral, oh my god, what am I going to do? I'm going to die reaction. I still love it. I still, I see more flaws in this movie, but that, uh, Gore Verbinski for me then, did not, couldn't do any wrong. He had done something magical and scared the ever loving shit out of me.
0: I mean, you're just making my dead black heart just sore. This is, this is what, those moments with, especially with horror films, where we feel like something might crawl out of the cinema or the TV screen yeah. or whatever, uh, never leave you. They're kind no. of defining moments. I love
1: that. And, and I, think, I think what's really, I think what's sad about that afterwards is the fact that you tell people about it and then inevitably you speak to someone who has seen the original mm. and they'll always say, yeah, but the original one's better. And it doesn't lessen what you feel, but suddenly you're like, oh, I didn't know a thing that was really important. Mm -hmm. And I think discussions around, especially when you're younger, you feel like, you know, then I went on to study film at Mm -hmm. university and that was where it was very much like, oh, no, you've not seen the Japanese original, you've seen nothing and it's like well actually like this translation was beautiful and stylized Mm -hmm. and what i watched last night when i watched it last night i was thinking oh it's amazing it's so green everything looks like it's gone through that amazing instagram filter and it's artful Mm -hmm. and i love it i still love it and i'm angry at when i thought oh no oh i should have seen the original i'm not i'm not very good i'm not a good horror fan because i i wasn't i was what 13 when the original one came out so i was you know I couldn't have seen it, but I think now I'm I'm still proud of me for enjoying it.
0: I mean, yeah, you should be, and also everybody comes to cultural objects in their own time, and they yeah. mean something different to you depending on when you discover them. And it sounds like you discovered the ring at the exact right right time. Totally. So that that's I feel what like we It's it a good thing. It that's is good. a good thing. This is okay. This is some yeah. kind of horror therapy, and I like. It. I love it. Also possible title for a new podcast thank you I'm gonna add that to my list horror therapy (laughs) me justifying that yes that
1: That idea will cost you I think it (laughs) fell out of my mouth (laughs) (laughs) so if we don't do it together we're not doing it
0: (laughs) listen I'm here for a horror podcast empire you know I am I've got nothing else to do I've bought this fancy mic I need to rinse it (laughs) Do it. We can do it. <laughs> no, but I love it. And you kind of, you know, you speak so beautifully about the frustration and the insecurity that comes with people telling you, "Oh, you've seen nothing." It's like actually, that's not a thing. I've I've seen yeah. that. I've heard that in every single possible room, festival, stage, yeah. green room, meeting room scenario. And actually, it's always bullshit. You see things at the time you want to see them. You connect with things that you need to connect with. And if you end up working in film, you gravitate towards working, you know, if you're lucky and you're really, really driven, you gravitate towards working around the films that you connect with. Yeah, never going to love. Never going to work in a fucking war film. Can't stand them, pour it out of my wits. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. It doesn't make them any less. No. So totally. That a massive aside, just because you touched on a subject that I really get really incensed about. <laughs>
1: No, it's good. It's good. It's, I think it's something we all have. I think we all have insecurities about mm. not knowing enough or not having enough of our homework done. You know, like, yeah, it, we can only watch so much and what we think of it is what we watch. So Exactly.
0: And you mentioned something, you know, going back to The Ring is Gore Vavinsky and his style. And even yeah. rewatching it, it's an incredibly stylish film. It's yeah. so cold and rainy austere. and yeah now we look at it almost as if it's got an Instagram filter wrong but that's not language or visual no. aesthetics that we had that existed in 2002 so what do you make of the film visually
1: do you know the first thing that pops into my mind is uh, the little boy making a peanut butter and jam sandwich <laughs> okay do you remember when he makes a peanut butter and jam sandwich no and it's Well, he makes a peanut butter and jam sandwich because he's showing how I love this little boy. I will go over and over him. I love him so much. He's like a little tiny man in a suit. And when he's looking in the mirror to fix his tie in the mirror, like I am not a broody individual. I'm not maternal in any capacity. But that little boy and his kind of, he has that kind of breathy Matilda speak. I don't know if they bred like an entire collection of little children who were all in the late noughties, going whispering, but also being like tiny adults in children bodies because that worked because that's definitely what he is. But going back to the style of the movie, I can see your face. We're, we're, you you have a look on your face. It's like Louise, what are you talking about? No,
0: Stop this now. I look like a but... little dramatic chimpunk. I'm like, oh my god, keep going. <laughs> I'm so here for all of this. <laughs> I,
1: I the, the reason I do have a point a point for this. It's not just me squeeing over the tiny child, but Gore Verbinski decides in the middle of his Japanese, you know, remake of a Japanese of an iconic Japanese horror movie that he has the time to show someone spreading peanut butter on <laughs> bread and then spreading jelly on bread and then making a sandwich. He is very purposeful. Mm-hmm. You see everything, and I think. Actually, the structure of the ring is very, very. It's very, very simple. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a case of you know the the girl, the girl dies. She goes to the funeral. That the mother says, "Please help me." That's what you do. Mm-hmm. You're a journalist, and she goes on a detective hunt. And there's literally those beautiful, almost iconic moments of scrolling through microfiche oh, and printing off old newspapers and piecing together literal maps mm-hmm. and looking at newspapers and all of those things. And it's this great rollicking detective Mm -hmm. yarn basically until it becomes a very different film in the third act Mm -hmm. but I love that kind of detective thriller aspect of it and I love that that time is taken I think it's really important that that time is taken because when you start and especially in 2002 we were we had watched a lot of these teen slashers we'd watched lots of ghost stories we'd watched two attractive girls tell each other scary stories at the start like that was not new but I think then, to have a very sort of mature, almost mm-hmm. noirish detective story in the middle of it was a really bold choice. I mean that movie's almost two hours long, mm-hmm. and apparently reading about it now it was a lot longer. There were lots of bits cut from it um so I really feel like it's it's one it, it's a very sort of epic style of horror film as opposed to eighty six minutes and you're done mm-hmm. and And because he's done that, gorobinsky's decided he's he's going to take the time to do things. You know, he's going to take the time to show you a proper story Mm -hmm. and a feeling. There's a distinct sensation and atmosphere to all of those locations Mm -hmm. that I don't think a shorter, less keen eyed
0: horror would be able to express. So what do you make of the unfolding of the story? You you've brushed over it a little bit, but I'm so keen to hear what you think about the way that the story and the horror of it actually unfolds, because we get our first jump scare, our first scare very early on with the image yeah. of Katie's death. Still an iconic yes. scare, still terrifies totally. me. Totally, still terrifying. Now. Yeah. yeah,
1: twisted faces like that are always. There's something that elongated face is genuinely petrifying. Yeah.
0: So, what do you think about the way that? the film unfolds because it takes a sweet time after that first jump scare.
1: It does take its sweet time and I think I appreciate that sweet time even more than I probably always did. I think I really like knowing how, I, I, even the, the fact that she arrives late to to pick up the son from school. I know that that's a kind and she's on the phone and she's a bit stressed and I know that that's a heavy handed thing of she works hard, mm-hmm. she's a she's you know. She's perhaps, you know, neglected her son slightly. You know, she's a, she's a busy mother. She's a single mother. But I appreciated then after that, mm-hmm. we, I read a lot of the stuff um, talking about, a lot of people were really mean about, this was an introduction for Naomi Watts, which is crazy for me because we always think Naomi Watts is this mega star. But actually at the time, Gore Verbinski felt like he introduced Naomi, yeah, Watts, like was he was like, Naomi Watts. Yeah, she was not a star. And I really, as a character, I really like her. I like her drive Mm -hmm. I don't approve of her parenting style but I don't have one so who am I to parent and I feel like she genuinely before we sort of retreat into horrific horror again Mm -hmm. I think we genuinely find out who she is and she has a complex relationship with with the you know the father of her little boy and I think like I enjoy the story gradually unfolding all around this tape. So she's obviously holding this VHS to find the origin story of this VHS. And I almost love how simple the the sort of Scooby-Doo-ness of it. It's like, oh, I've got a picture of them. They went to a camp, a, a, a cabin. Let's go to the cabin. So it's very Evil Dead. And suddenly you're like, we're at a cabin. It's horrible, but she happens to pick the right VHS off the, off the bookcase of VHSs. <laughs> and all of that's quite contrived. But regardless of that, from there... I find it irresistibly watchable from that point as she tries to you know you you have a very simple thing of oh you've watched the tape you've now got seven days Mm -hmm. and that's when the movie goes into it's you find the first day it's like Thursday day one Mm -hmm. and you're immediately on a clock and you know that time is of the essence even if the movie doesn't and um it's relentless from there on so despite its length the way the story unfolds I
0: feel like is quite essential. Mm -hmm. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the actual horror of it. One of the key, I think, still iconic visual elements of The Ring is the way that Verbinski reshoots and adds so much surrealist and fucked up imagery to the tape. It's really fucked up. It's like, yeah. I still like, gotta admit, I've watched way too too many horror films to count in my lifetime. I still get a little bit freaked out with that tape. Yeah. What do you make of the of the imagery of the tape and the way that it infects the reality of the film?
1: First thing I want to say about the imagery of the tape, before we go on to the imagery of the tape, when the VHS was released back originally, if you put it in your VHS player and then rewound it, you would find the video.
0: No fucking way.
1: I read from multiple sources that it used in a really inventive thing. If you rewound it, then that was that you found the video. Oh, Which sounds absolutely fascinating. And now it's available, if you have the DVD, it's available as a DVD extra, but it can't be skipped or fast forwarded through. You have to, or paused even, you have to watch the whole thing. Apparently is something that it can do as well. But that's because that imagery is horrific it feels like you are infecting your brain with something that you should not be watching and i think you know i, I listened to uh the evolution of horror episode uh with mike and oh gosh is, it, is her name pamela she the the silent cinema special pamela so yeah and she and they were talking about Un-Shia and she and Mm-hmm. and this is if if on she and Andalou is not considered a horror movie i think it is because mm-hmm. of its eyeball this is Horror cinemas Unchi and Andalou on She and Andalu on crap, like <laughs> incre- like the imagery in the Ring short, like the horrible. Yes, there's the basics, like there's the horrible bug, like that's really nasty, or here's the fly, but it's the really strange, ultra Escher surrealist mm-hmm. stuff, like the ladder and the chair and the girl, the woman in the mirror, the woman in the mirror scares the heck out of me. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. perfect shot of that perfect circle and is that completely simple and I'd forgotten how long it goes on for. It is not a comfortable watch. It it genuinely feels like your brain is being invaded by something that you really don't need there. And no wonder your phone rings after seven days. <laughs> after a minute and tells you you're not going to die in seven days. Because it feels like your brain can't cope with any of it. I, I've got a note that just hit, here says, The horse. So <laughs> intense. It's a good thing I don't just read out my notes. Well, I have. It, well, actually, I'm looking here and I'm really glad I did look at my notes because under my hasty scribbling of Unchi and Andalou, it just says the word fingers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what does that so, mean? So that's
1: obviously thinking about the little box <laughs> full of fingers that are all twitching, which oh. I think might be one of the most disturbing bits of that video. That's not, you know, a really disturbing you know just random minimalist thing where you go I don't understand why this is scary because at least the fingers you understand why it's scary but yeah it's it's a ghastly video it's wonderful there's a
0: word that we both kept saying and it's infecting and yes the one of the elements of horror of the ring is how this imagery of the video of the tape starts infiltrating the reality of the film so yes. what do you make of that element of it and does, do you think it continues working even now?
1: Oh, I think it works all the way through, actually. I do think it does. I mean, the horse and the horse's eye. And there, and, and I love the repeated, um, to show the passage of time. I love the repeated look at that uh, the tree on the hill. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy mm-hmm. it. this the, And the burning colors of it as well. I think you realize how stylized it all is when, especially closer to the end, when she falls into the, she's, Pushed into the well, mm-hmm. and the stone covers, and he's trying to rescue her and yeah. he goes outside and the lighting is so unreal, utterly unreal in in many different ways, but I think it works really well with it because by that point, you know the rules you know how it's you know how it's all working you know the central conceit of this girl that shouldn't be mm-hmm. that is existing under this house that I really felt like by that it had earned itself all the references to the ring and it also also really explained them as well. Like I think her projecting her furious consciousness onto a VHS tape I think is really interesting because I think there's a lot of I was saying about the technology and young women being wrung in their technology and their technology messing with them. There's actually like a real almost in reality you know like in terms of things like moral panics Mm -hmm. um when it's to do with women and it's to do with technology it is almost like a punishment of women not not being able to have technology or this is what happens if women have technology terrible things will happen Mm -hmm. it's almost an inequality of this um i think there's a really interesting relationship between the feminine And what's expected of a woman to have children and to keep the house and to do all of these things, but to play with what are inherently still regarded by many as boys' toys. Um, I think there's a really interesting relationship Mm -hmm. there. Um, that can always be unpicked. Of well, this is what happens if if women get to talk on podcasts, or this is what happens if people have views on these things. So I think the fact that The fact that Samara chooses a VHS and chooses technology and chooses phones and infects people that way and uses a television and white noise. Like all of these things are distinctly futuristic. Mm -hmm. They are, again, that use of technology, the idea that you cannot escape. Of course, you're surrounded by screens. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that, um, especially the, the scare at the start, the teenagers, the turning on of the television, Those things are scary because they're things that we think we have control over. So the fact that she chooses these particular outlets are especially fascinating to me.
0: That's such an incredible read on the film. You're so right. And you've mentioned Samara, but we haven't really spoken about her. So what do you think of Samara as the, the key monster of the ring? And also of the way the film plays with Our expectations of who she is.
1: I actually, I really enjoy the fact that we're meant to think that by that Rachel's mission is to rescue Samara. Like, I love that idea. I love the fact that she's like, we found her bones, everything's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a buffy thing. It's It's like, we rescued the bones, (laughs) we put them in the right place, and everything's okay. You know, like they just, they were just trying to send us a message. Mm -hmm. You know, no, no, she's not trying to send you a message. She still wants to kill your child. (laughs) Like, like, even if she's been giving him creepy messages going, Oh, I can hear the horses. She still wants to kill your child. So, I, so I really like how that messes with not just her expectations of what that ghost wants, but ours as well, mm-hmm. because that's a whole other part of the film. We think, Oh, we think the bit in the well is the end. That's the final fight. That's the big bad, right? No, it's not the big bad. So, and I also love the fact that the idea that no, she is intrinsically bad. And I think a lot of um, a lot of movies are always sort of averse to saying children are bad. They're just like, no, they're not bad. You just think they are because you're you're uh, sort of you're putting your own thoughts
0: onto mm. them. Or they're bad because there was a reason they became evil. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's an abu- a horrible abuse story. Mm-hmm. You know, I-, I hated that Rob Zombie did that with Halloween. He p- he made he put a really scuzzy abuse story onto it. When actually, what's scarier about Michael Myers is that he just killed people. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't need a he didn't need a story. He's scary anyway. So Samara is creepy mind melding celluloid melting Michael Myers. The fact that she is a tiny human of evil, and that's okay. And the fact that the third act of the bonus third act of the film is when it comes and bites you in the mm-hmm. ass, I love. And I love the fact that because you know Rachel decides that. Like she's not been a great mother. Mm-hmm. This is her being a great mother. So mm-hmm. there's all this sort of motherhood stuff tied into it. And it's the cradling of Samara. as And that's a horrible bit. You know, when she's she's holding the, the body, which then the eyeball melts out the side. <laughs> you see, like the eyeball just goes all melty and screwy. And it was just an, an added moment of ick in a movie that had already had <laughs> enough body horror of nails and walls and choking up hair. Real physicality mm-hmm. that was just... That was just the grim, hidey icing on the already vile cake. (laughs) ah.
0: But no, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's also quite interesting because it's not something I think at that time, and maybe not even still, we're used to experiencing from American or, you know, broadly speaking English language horror films we're totally. so, we're sort of used to this narrative of, oh, if there's a curse, if there's a haunting, if there's a demon or an evil force or monster of any kind, especially when it's presented as a little girl, a little white girl, which is, you know the the picture perfect uh, image of innocence that we're told, or that yep. we're led to believe is the picture perfect image of innocence. It really, I think, was one of the first films that subverts um, our idea of who is the real villain and actually what is the purpose of the protagonist of Rachel. She has solved the mystery, but actually she can't really do anything. In fact, the only way that she can save herself and her child is by actually being a bad person and extending the curse. She needs to make the copy. You know, that's the big kind of reveal in the second, third act. And it's the fact that she cannot be innocent if she wants to live. And she has to accept this idea that Samara cannot be fixed and she's not meant to be fixed. She's just, like you said, tiny little ball of evil. She is.
1: She really is. And what I think is really interesting was they'd apparently introduced a horrific serial killer at the start of the movie, who Rachel, who kept approaching Rachel and saying, you wrote all these things about me, but I actually, I, I'm like, I regret my actions. He got out of prison mm-hmm. for some reason. I regret my actions. And she said, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. You're skeevy, you're skeevy. And then apparently he then disappears for the entire rest of the movie. And then at the end, that's who she hands the video to. So there was a cut of the movie that had this scapegoat for her to keep. So he deserved to die. Somebody morally awful was going to watch the tape and die. So it wasn't as bad. Mm -hmm. So it's far, far better with that cold look on her face. Because obviously she thought that the whole point of that thing was for her to know who she was giving it to. Mm -hmm. But our movie, like we had it cut. So we didn't get to find that out. So she knew where it was going and it's therefore much scarier because you think she doesn't care who she gives it to as long as she shows it to someone that's that that can take the curse away which I find really interesting they took that away from her
0: yeah it's a really lovely way for us to start wrapping up the conversation around both of these films and I wanted to ask you kind of as a final provocation how do you think both of these films play with the idea of a curse
1: I think they're both sort of variations on a theme of that, aren't they? The fact that she she died in the most horrific way, you know, that horrible plastic bag scene and then down into a well for those seven days where she is alive, agony, agonizing, you know. But she was already evil before she went in. So I think that's probably the difference, mm-hmm. isn't it? The fact that, yes, the curses are similar and... You know, one thing I wanted to say while we wrap it up, the imagery of Samara when she comes out of the television, mm-hmm. stylistically looking like a VHS. I don't know how they make that character look like a VHS, but it's probably my favorite thing in the whole world, <laughs> the fact that she still looks digital. I love that so much. But I think the the central, you know, something horrible with its, you know, a horrific spirit will hunt you because of anger. Mm-hmm. I love that variation on that, but they are two very, very different things. But I was reading a bit about the sort of original Japanese spirits, mm-hmm. the the, the spirits stories that they are based on, and they are loosely based on round about the same story. Quite a different one. It's a sort of different variation of it, but they do come from the same place of anger and hate. And I suppose in Samara's case, like misunderstanding, mm-hmm. like. I feel like they tried to understand Samara, and she wasn't for. She's she's not quite the same. um But I do think that variations on a theme of of revenge are wrapped in in the Rings case a far more e- easy to ex almost an easy to explain thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you watch a video, you get a call. It is an urban legend, is not it? You watch a video, you get a call, and you're dead in seven days. And that's a very very simple premise. It is a simple premise in the idea of the grudge that you go into a house and it's haunted, but I think the grudge has a the Joe and the curse has much more of a a complex, interwoven narrative to it. Um, but the ring is like this short, sharp shock that even if you don't do the rest of the movie, if you didn't find out it was Samara, even if you watched the bit the, the girls at the start and the watching of the tape, you're already scared. So it it kind of it does its job even in the idea of it, because we all know what. Well, we don't all know what it's like to put a VHS in a machine, because we're not all as old as us. But I think there's something about that. Um, there's something about that tacticality mm-hmm. of uh, of
0: VHSs that lingers long after we've pressed stop. That's a beautiful sentence to end on, Louise. Where we're going to press stop? Not yet. Don't press stop just <laughs> <Not> yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and for your incredible insight. And where can people find out more about your work online?
1: Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, If you, the best place to find me is Twitter. So I'm at shiny underscore demon.
0: And that's it for today's episode of the Final Girls podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your shows. If you can, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find out more about what we do on TheFinalGhost.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at TheFinalGhost.co.uk We also have a Patreon if you're so inclined, you can support us there. And you can follow Louise on Twitter at shiny underscore demon. And I react to Twitter trends about three days too late over on Anna Be Demented. Thank you for listening. And next week, we'll be discussing one of my personal favorite horror films of all time with one of my favorite podcasters of all time.